Grace you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. My sermon title today is Sing the Law, So I Should Obey My Own Instruction. I'm singing from Psalm 119, a couple of cantos from Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is pure and walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies and seek Him with their whole heart. Those who do no wickedness but walk in His ways. You, O Lord, have charged that we should diligently keep Your commandments. Oh, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep Your statutes. Then would I not be put to shame because I have regard for all Your commandments. I will thank You with an unfeigned heart while I have learned Your righteous judgments. I will keep Your statutes. Forsake me not utterly. My soul is pining for Your salvation. I have hoped in Your word. My eyes fail with watching for Your word. While I say, Oh, when will You comfort me? I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you bring your judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me in defiance of your law. All your commandments are true. Help me for they persecute me with falsehood. They had almost made an end of me on earth. But I had not forsaken your commandments. Give me life according to your loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimonies of your mouth. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, age after age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would write the words of your law on our hearts, that we might not sin against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a relief to both me and to you that I will not be singing the sermon. I used it all up there. A few weeks ago, I finished up a series on the Ten Commandments. For some Christians, this would seem like a futile and maybe even a dangerous exercise. After all, aren't we uh, in the New Covenant? Are we still under the law? Why do we need this external word, these external commandments, when the Lord has promised us that He will write the law in our hearts? Do we need an external word from God? There's some parts of the New Testament that seem to say, no, Our New Testament reading this morning was from Hebrews 8, which contrasts the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, which was faulty, the Old Covenant, which is fading away, and the New Covenant, which is growing and is advancing. The Old Covenant is a covenant when God took His people by the hand and gave them commandments, and they failed. But the New Covenant is a covenant when God writes His Word, His law on our hearts, The great blessing of the New Covenant, it seems, is that we don't need to worry about all these small stipulations of God's external word. In fact, it seems dangerous to do so. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that the Old Covenant was a ministry of death, 
when God wrote in letters of stone on tablets of stone. Now the ministry of life, the ministry of righteousness has come when the Spirit no longer writes on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. If we have life now, life in the Spirit, life because the Spirit has written the Word of God on our hearts, why go back into a covenant of death? Why go back to the letter which kills when we have the Spirit that gives life? Going back to the letter doesn't seem to help anyway. Paul tells us at the end of a long section of Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, For what the law could not do, God did through His Son, so that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We actually keep the law by keeping in step with the Spirit. seems to nullify any need for an external word to speak to us from the outside, commandments from the outside that we have to hear and learn, and memorize. No, the Spirit is writing on our hearts. Are we moving back into the Old Covenant by spending our time studying the ten words, or in fact any part of the written law? The problem with that idea, of course, is the New Testament is a book, or set of books. The same Paul who says the Spirit writes on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, The same Paul who tells us that the letter kills is the Paul who spends a lot of his life writing letters, teaching, using external words to instruct the people of God. And so all do do the other apostles, and so do all the teachers of the church. Every church in the New Testament has teachers in it, and they're all devoted to teaching the written word of God to the people of God. If Paul is saying we don't need the external word anymore then he's undermining, he's subverting his own apostolic ministry. He's subverting the ministry of the church. Yes, the Spirit does write on our hearts in the New Covenant. The law is on our hearts. The question is, how does the law get there? What means does the Spirit use to put the law on our hearts? How does the law get internalized? And according to Scripture, from beginning to end, the law gets internalized when we hear it externally, when we see it and study it, and, importantly, when we put it in our mouths to say it and to sing it. We need the word not just for the occasional correction. We do need that. We can't really tell the difference between our own desires and the promptings of the Spirit. We need an external word to correct us and give us guidance and give us light. But we also need an external word to give us life. We live by the word of God. Sustain me according to your word, says the psalmist of Psalm 119, that I may live. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I might have life. We need that external word coming into our ears. We need that external word visible in front of us so we can study it. And we need that external word in our mouths to speak and to sing. That's how the word gets into our hearts. Those are the means the Spirit uses to write the law in our hearts. As the psalmist of 119 says again, Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. The Psalter is a Torah, the law made into song. It's divided into five books, just like the five books of Moses. 
And as we sing this new Torah, this Davidic Torah, that glorifies the Mosaic Torah without canceling out the Mosaic Torah, as we sing this Davidic Torah, that word becomes part of us. It becomes internalized in us. And of all the Psalms in the Psalter, in all of, of all the Psalms in this sung Torah, Psalm 119 is the Torah-est of them. It's the Psalm that includes most about the law of God, about the word of God that he's delivered to us. The, the Psalm uses eight different words for law. Law, commandments, testimonies, judgments, words, precepts, sayings, promises. Those are all more or less synonymous in Psalm 119. And virtually every line of Psalm 119, with only two or three exceptions, virtually every line has at least one of those words in it. 176 verses, and 170 some of them have a word that is synonymous with either the word Torah, law, or some word that's synonymous with Torah. This is the Torah-est of this Davidic Torah the book of Psalms. Psalm 119 is the Sinai Psalm. It's in the fifth book of the Psalter that begins with Psalm 107 and goes to the end of the Psalter. And it corresponds to Sinai in that section of the Psalter. Uh, the book five of the Psalter basically traces the history of Israel from the Exodus through the return from exile. It begins with Psalms about the Exodus, Psalm 107, 108. Uh, recounting the Exodus, praising God for the Exodus. It includes psalms of praise to God for what He's done, bringing Israel out, hallelujah, uh, in the early part of this section of the Psalter. Hallelujah is a, the beginning of several psalms, praising God for the Exodus. And then we come to Psalm 119, the Sinai Psalm. And then there's a series of about a dozen psalms of ascent as Israel ascends from the land and ascends to Jerusalem, ascends up to the house of God. We might think that we're going to end with this great burst of praise, which we have at the end of the Psalter. But before we get there, the Psalms of Ascent actually lead us into exile. After we have the Psalms of Ascent, we have Psalm 137. We're sitting by the, by the uh, uh, willows of Babylon, by the streams of Babylon. And we're told, sing the songs of Yahweh. And the psalmist asked the question, can we sing the psalms of Yahweh? Can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And that question hovers over the next section of the Psalter. Can we sing God's words when we're in a foreign land? That psalm, 137, is followed by about 10 Davidic psalms, which seems a little surprising. We think after a psalm of exile, we should get a psalm of return from exile. Can we sing the psalms in a foreign land? Well, we should get back to the temple so we can sing psalms in the temple. But instead we have a number of lament psalms of David. And it reminds us that David himself wrote these psalms while he was in exile. Can we sing the psalms in a foreign land where they're written in a foreign land? They're written when David is a fugitive, when Saul's chasing him, or when he's trying to fight against Philistines. They're written for a people in exile. Of course we can sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land. That's what they're written for. And around Psalm 145, 144, 145, we have the end of the Davidic sequence in the Psalter. And from then on, we just have an outburst of praise. Every psalm from that point on begins and ends 
with Alleluia. Praise Yah. Praise Yah at the beginning. Praise Yah at the end. And by the time we get to Psalm 150, we are in the, we're in the temple, the new temple. The exile is over. The people of God have ascended to the house of God, and they're celebrating God with song. That's the sequence of the uh, fifth book of the Psalter. It's tracing the whole history of Israel from the Exodus through the exile into the new temple after the exile, when Israel will once again gather in the land and praise God with their voices and praise God with instruments of music. And in that structure, Psalm 119 is the Sinai psalm. It's the one that corresponds within that narrative of the Psalter. It's the one that corresponds with Israel receiving the word at Sinai. Psalm 119 looks like it's a collection, kind of a random collection of one-liners about the law. As I said, virtually every line includes something about the law, some word. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. They do no unrighteousness, they walk in His ways. Thou hast ordained Thy precepts, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways might be established to keep thy statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all thy commandments. Again and again, every, virtually every verse has some reference to the law. And it looks like just a random collection of one or two liners. In our Bibles, they're two-line verses. In the Hebrew Bible, they're one-line verses. But there's an intricate structure to this psalm. On the surface, you can see, even from your English Bibles, that it's an alphabetic psalm. It follows the Hebrew alphabet. You probably have the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, at least the names of those letters, at the beginning of each eight-verse canto. The first section, verses 1 through 8, is the Aleph section, the Aleph canto of Psalm 119. Then from verse 9 through uh, verse 16, you have the Bets, then Gimel, Dalet, and so on. And those aren't just the headings of these cantos, but those cantos are written around those letters. Every line... In the Hebrew Bible, every line of the first canto, verses 1 through 8, begins with the same letter, with Aleph. Every line of the Beit section begins with the letter Beit. Every line of the Gimel section begins with the letter Gimel, and so on until the end of the alphabet. You have an alphabetic psalm. The alphabet is the way that Israel is able to use the language, the Hebrew language, in order to communicate, in order to communicate with one another, in order to praise God. This psalm is kind of an alphabet of the law. If we want to learn to speak Torah, if we want to learn to speak Bible, Psalm 119 is one of the places we go. And we sing it again and again and again. And as we sing it, like singing your alphabet when you were two or three or whenever you learned your alphabet, singing it again and again and again gives us the letters, as it were, that we need in order to speak Bible. The psalm is 176 verses divided up into 22 cantos of eight verses. But those cantos are themselves, excuse me, grouped together into sections. There are seven sections of cantos. The first three cantos fit together, the next three, the next three. And then we have a central section that's four cantos long, and then we have three, three, three again. It's like a menorah, the menorah in the temple. The menorah was the lampstand in the temple that gave light to the interior of the tabernacle and the temple. And this is like a menorah psalm, structured so that it looks like the lamp that the law is. 
in this sevenfold section, a sevenfold pattern. And at the center we have the section that I uh, that I sang from earlier. It's actually verses seventy three through verse one hundred four. Those central sections contain the letters that make up the word, the Hebrew word Malki, which is which are the the consonants of the word my king. At the center of the psalm, we have a reference, an alphabetic reference, to the king of Israel. And that reminds us, or alerts us to the fact that this psalm is a royal psalm. Later Jewish rabbis put a lot of emphasis on Torah study. We don't find a lot of that in Scripture. We don't find a lot of emphasis on studying the Torah. We have a, find a lot of emphasis on doing the Torah, obeying it, hearing it, but not a lot on studying it. The one person who is required to study the law, according to the law itself, is the king. It shall come about, Deuteronomy says, when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write out for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God. According to Deuteronomy, Torah study, study of the Word of God, is a royal pastime. This is what kings do in their spare time. This is what kings do of an evening. They pull out the Torah scroll that they've written out in the presence of the Levitical priests, and they read it, and they study it, and they try to learn it. Psalm 119 gives us a a way to become kings, because we not only study this word, but these words get in our mouth. We speak these words. That's the difference, you see, between the Mosaic Torah and the Davidic Torah. The Mosaic Torah was a set of laws that Israel listened to and heard from Sinai. They heard the ten words directly from Yahweh's mouth. They heard the rest of the law from Moses' mouth. And then they responded, Amen. But in the Davidic Torah, the Davidic Torah is a psalter. We put these words in our mouths and we speak these words. We become kings as we speak and sing these words. And as we speak and sing these words, the Spirit is forming us so that we can be anointed kings, serving God with the law in our hearts. This is a royal psalm, as well as a, an alphabetic psalm. Right at the center of the psalm is the end of the canto that's labeled Kaf. That's Psalm 88. That's the numerical center of the entire psalm. There's an equal number of words in the, psalm, in the Hebrew Psalter on either side of the last three words of Psalm 88. In English, they are, so that I may guard the testimony of your mouth. That's the center of the whole psalm. There's an equal number of words on either side of those three words in the Hebrew. And that's also a royal vocation. The word testimony doesn't just refer to the words that God speaks, but in the singular, it often refers to the law that's written on tablets and placed inside the ark and put into the most holy place of the temple. When Israel goes before the testimony, they're going into the most holy place. When they place a jar of manna before the testimony, that means they're putting it before the ark. When Aaron's rod gets put before the testimony, that means that it's being put before the ark that contains the covenant law. And the king whose psalm this is, is the king who wants to keep or guard the testimony of the Lord's mouth. His job, of course, is to uphold the civil law to enforce the civil law. But in Israel, his job is not just to do that. His job is to guard the place where the law is housed, where the testimony of the Lord 
is uh, located inside the temple. The psalmist asks the Lord to revive him, give him life. That's verse, uh, first part of verse 88. Give me life according to your loving kindness, so that I may guard the testimony of your mouth. He's asking the Lord to preserve his life, to sustain his life, to keep him alive so that he can fulfill this royal vocation of guarding the place of God's law. And although the, the psalm doesn't apply to us in that way, the psalm does point us to a new covenant version of that. The psalm itself talks about treasuring the law of God in our hearts. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's like the treasure of the law inside the most holy place, inside the treasure chest of the ark. And we're supposed to be kings, as the psalmist is, guarding the testimony of the Lord's mouth, which the Spirit has written on our hearts, making sure that nothing takes that away, that we're refreshing and renewing that testimony that's on our heart, that we're removing anything from our lives and cutting off anything that's going to uh, defile that treasure that's in our hearts. That's a royal job, and it's part of what we're doing as we sing the law, as we sing this Torah Psalter. We're singing so that we can learn to guard the treasury of God that the Lord has placed in our hearts. The psalmist in Psalm 119 is not a detached admirer of the psalm, of the law. He doesn't give kind of detached appreciation to the, to the law. Instead, this is more like a love song to the law. The word delight is used more often in Psalm 119 than it is in the rest of the Hebrew Bible combined. Because, and it's usually delight in the testimony or the commandments or the statutes of the Lord. It's not just that the, the psalmist knows that these are good commandments and wants to obey them, but he delights in them. He wants to be, uh, he wants to know them. He doesn't want to forget them. His testimonies, the Lord's testimonies are his delight. He doesn't forget the word of the Lord because the word is his delight. In fact, there's so much passion directed to the law here that this psalm seems to verge on a kind of bibliolatry. A lot of the the terms that are used to describe Israel's relationship to Yahweh are translated in Psalm 119 to our relationship with the law. Moses, in our uh, Old Testament lesson this morning, tells Israel not to forsake, but to cling to and hold to Yahweh. The psalmist says, I will cling to your commandments. Moses says, trust in Yahweh and lean not on your own understanding. That's a proverb. But the psalmist says he trusts in God's word. My hope is in Yahweh, David says. And in Psalm 119, my hope is in Yahweh's word. My hope is in his judgments. The first great commandment is Deuteronomy is to love the Lord your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But several times the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I love your commandments. Fear Yahweh, Moses says. I fear your judgments, the psalmist says. We're supposed to stretch out our hands to God in prayer, but the psalmist says, I stretch out my hands to your commandments because I love them. These acts of devotion that the rest of the Bible uh, directs toward Yahweh, toward God, the psalmist directs toward his commandments, his statutes, and his testimonies. This is either a kind of idolatry of the book, 
or he is identifying the word of the Lord with the Lord so closely that his devotion to the Lord and his devotion to his Torah, his word, are virtually identical. He fears God, and that for that reason he fears the testimonies and judgments of God. He loves God, and therefore he loves his commandments. He trusts in them, he clings to them, and clings to God, and therefore he clings to and trusts the Lord's commandments. In Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is like the mode or the means of Yahweh's presence among his people. The Lord is present with the psalmist because the word is present. And he needs that presence because this psalm is full of talk about enemies, persecutors, liars, slanderers. We saw a couple of those references in the calf section, verses 81 through 88. He speaks about persecutors. He's waiting for God's judgment against his persecutors. He's waiting for God to help him, for those who, uh, to, to, to uh, uh, deliver him from those who persecute him with a lie. There's so many references to enemies and persecutors in Psalm 119 that some scholars think that this is a lament psalm, not just a psalm of praise of the law, but a lament psalm, where David or the psalmist is crying out to the Lord to deliver him from these enemies. And in the midst of that pressure, the word of the Lord is the Lord's presence with him. He knows that the Lord is with him because the word is still there. And even when these persecutors almost succeed, when these persecutors almost drive him down to the dust, when he becomes, as he says in verse 83, like a wineskin in the smoke, like a wineskin that's so dried out and shriveled that it can't even contain wine anymore. When he says, as he does later on in this, uh, in that section, they almost destroyed me on earth. Even when all this pressure comes, he knows that the Lord is with him and will be with him because the word is with him. This is why he sings the psalm. Because even when the Lord is not rescuing him, even when the Lord seems to be absent, even when the Lord seems to have abandoned him to his enemies, the word is there. And as long as the word is there, God is there and he will be there as deliverer, as savior. He will keep his promise. This is why the psalmist wants to sing the law. And this is why we should learn to sing the law. Because the law, the word of God, broadly speaking, not just the Torah, not just that section of the Bible, but the whole Bible, is a mode of God's presence with us. We place the word on our hearts. The spirit places the word on our hearts as we hear it, as we study it, as we sing it, as we say it, so that when we're abandoned, when, when we have enemies, when it looks like we're ground down into the dust, when it looks like our enemies have triumphed over us, the Lord is still there with us through his word. And the word is still there with us when the word isn't there with us. One good test on how well you know your Bible is to ask yourself, how would I do if I were sent to a prison camp? How would I do if I were sent to the gulag? How much of the Bible could I retain? How much could I sing? Could I sing the Lord's song in a prison camp? We can only do that if the Spirit is writing the law in our hearts, and the Spirit writes His law in our hearts through our eyes, through our ears, and through our mouths, through our tongues as we hear, as we see, as we study, and as we sing. If we want to fulfill our royal vocation, we need the Lord with us. And the Lord is with us through His Word. So sing the law. 
so that the Spirit will write it on your hearts. Sing the law so that He'll be with you even when all seems lost, when He seems to have abandoned you. Sing the law until He raises you from the dust and sits you on a throne, singing like a king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the living Word that dwells within us. We thank You that He will not abandon us. We thank You that He's spoken words, that You have spoken words to us, that we can see, that we can hear, that we can sing. And we pray that we would use all these means so that Your Spirit would write Your Word upon our hearts, so that You would be with us, so that Your Word would be with us, whatever comes, and that we would live to glorify You and praise You on thrones, kings with Jesus our King. We pray this for His sake. Amen.